morning. Uh, so I don't have a PowerPoint this morning. Um, I was thinking that would be all right because I could print out outlines for everybody, but the printer's not working. So uh, this isn't going to be a lesson centered on just one passage. So I'll try to I'll try to repeat the passages and kind of talk slowly when we get to those points. Um, I can't promise I'll talk slowly the whole lesson, but um, I'll try to be slow and deliberate about the passages we look at uh, this morning. Um, the title of this lesson uh, is Risks and Realities of God's Grace. Um, it's just going to be a really personal lesson for the Christians here. Um, it's going to be a, a challenging lesson to teach. Um, but when you read the epistles, uh, it can be strangely easy to overlook that the epistles were always addressing what the needs of the church were that were going to be receiving it. Um, those letters were spread. We obviously have 1 Corinthians. And can you just imagine being a visitor to the Corinthian church when that letter was being written? You're like, what, what have I walked into? Like, what is, what is going on? But that's just the reality is, as a church, we're trying to learn to be God's people, um, to be sober-minded and diligent about the people we're called to be, and there are times where we have to address very personal matters in our work, where if you're visiting or if you're not very involved, you may not have any idea what's going on, um, but that's okay. Uh, so really to start this lesson, um, kind of what triggered this lesson is how things have gone with Philip. Um, he's a dear brother who was converted some months ago. Um, great, serious, deep needs with many demands. Um, our relationship with Philip has changed recently. Um, he's chosen to go back to the world. Um, he may repent and uh, rejoin himself to the Lord, but we've encouraged him, we've invested, we've admonished, we've rebuked. Um, we've done that individually. We've done that with two or three. We've done that by addressing things to the church, and he's progressively chosen to turn away uh, from the truth. Philip's needs were so demanding and so many people um, were so involved and so many hard conversations happened from so many different people and so many hard choices were made um, very graciously that I think this situation is just a little more unique than when somebody falls away. And I think um, after thinking a lot about this, it just seems very prudent that this is something that we may need to think about together just to make sure that Satan doesn't have opportunities to plant seeds of selfish, worldly, arrogant, cruel thinking um, in regard to how these things can make us think. Um, I think this is kind of a vital place in our work as well. Um, I think not just protectively to prevent those things, but I think the way that these circumstances have gone can also, if we are prudent and sober-minded about these things, can actually push us to grow in very important, um, unified, vital ways. But again, if that's going to happen, we have to be just honest, open, and serious about these things, right? So I'm just going to do this lesson just, you know, you probably figured out by now, I do three-point lessons, like literally every time, right? Um, a brother in Alabama said, Bryant, you should always do three-point lessons, and I was like, okay. So this is going to be a three-point lesson um, we're just going to look at God's example with mankind through the Old Testament, just skimming through some passages that show the risks that God was taking, showing grace and the consequences, 
Then we're going to look at Paul with the Corinthian church. You know, that church was invested in in a way that we don't we don't get as much insight into that kind of investment with any other church. The Corinthians are so unique. And then we're just going to look at Luke chapter 6 at the end and who we're called to be, the kind of investment and attitudes and graciousness we're commanded to have, kind of considering all of this. Um, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 5 and 6. Um, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. So we're, this first point, we're dealing with God's relationship just with mankind, and we're just going to get more and more specific and just skim through some verses and just take a couple of lessons from this at the end of looking through these verses. Uh, but this, this first point is how God was working with the world at this time and, and just consequences of how things went by this point. So Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So just kind of thinking about this, I just want you to think for a minute, what was God doing here, right? Was God just kind of passively watching from heaven? Things are just kind of happening and getting worse and worse and God is just kind of sitting on his throne like somebody sits on their couch watching TV and just things are just getting worse, you know, and it's just hurting him as he just kind of passively watches. Um, you know, that's one of the consequences of disobedience that we're going to talk about more in one of the applications from this first point is God, his activity and the reality of his character and involvement in life and the intimacy of that is void. I mean, it's, it's made void in its appearance by disobedience. But I'm going to suggest to you that what Jesus brought into the world is a great revelation of a mystery that Paul spoke about in Acts chapter 17 when he said that it's actually by him we move and breathe and have all our existence. So I want you to think that in this instance, that since creation, God was trying to do everything that he possibly could to salvage whatever he could, trying to be as involved as he could be under that dispensation of time. And by the time you get to Genesis 6, everything had just reached catastrophic failure. So God was grieved, for one. But verse, uh, verse 6, um, in the ESV it says, God regretted that he had made man on the earth. People have had a hard time with that. Um, I just decided to look up some commentaries to see what some thoughts were on that. It's kind of um, funny reading commentaries, the work that people do to say, well, it doesn't actually mean what it says. Like, you know, God's not like a man. He doesn't feel things like man. You know, so it's, it's more like a, a phrase trying to put God in a humanistic kind of box. But, you know, it's more for our sake. He doesn't really feel that. And, um, you know, I think that's just really dangerous. Uh, to begin to actually try to say the verse isn't saying what it actually says, and I think it's actually important to understand this. First major lesson from this verse, just in general, when we experience regret and grief because of giving grace and it seems like the end result is actually void because of disobedience, God actually understands better than anybody ever could the kind of regret we inevitably feel and are confronted with when we've invested ourselves so much and taken so many risks, and here we are, it seems like it was all in vain, right? Now, the reason why that's important, did God's heart change because of that grief and regret, right? 
did God compromise his nature? Did he close himself off from that day forward, from ever making an investment like that ever again? Did he become suspicious, doubtful in the future? Did he decide that maybe it'll be a better idea? Let's try this again. You know, I'll start over with Noah. But I'm going to be a little more reserved the next time because giving so much was too painful and it really didn't work out. When you look at verse 8 and it says Noah found favor in God's eyes, do you know what that means? It means that God, in the midst of this pain and regret he was feeling, was so uncompromising in his nature, he was zealously looking for any way to actually invest more for the future. That was his great solution. Because when the floods covered the earth and everything just kind of started afresh, God began making covenants. And God's covenants are always God's way of investing even more, with even more wisdom, right? Um, and just to, we're not going to turn to these passages, but there's a couple New Testament passages that I think put a window into how New Testament writers felt the same thing. Galatians chapter 4, the Galatian church was a church where, who were walking away from God's grace. And that's evidence as you read just through the entire letter. And in Galatians 4 verse 11, Paul actually says, I fear for you that perhaps we labored over you in vain, right? He doesn't use the word that, hey, I regret what we've done. But he, he does say, I have a legitimate fear that basically that everything that we've done, everything that God has given you was all for nothing, Right? In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, a passage that we might be more familiar with, it's talking about those who, when saved, choose to go back into the world. It says it would have actually been better for them to have actually not even known the way of righteousness than having come to know it and having turned back to the world, right? I think it's that same idea, just acknowledging the depth of pain and difficulty that comes from God's investment into souls and when we involve ourselves. So that... That's the first point is we can experience regret and the pain of feeling that without it causing us to become suspicious of those who we encounter in the future similarly, without compromising our nature, compromising our character, because that's the temptation with these feelings. When grace seems to be made void, the temptation is to regret into a calloused heart, right? Um, Turn to Psalm 78 and This is going to be somewhat redundant, but that's really the point. Because the point of this is that God never changed. Even when he was tested and pushed beyond what anybody could ever imagine, God just stayed the same. Um, So Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verses 40 and 41. Psalm 78, 40 and 41. This is God's dealing with Israel in the wilderness now, right? Psalm 78, verses 40 and 41. God's dealing with Israel in the wilderness. So, Just remember everything that God's invested. This is a psalm where he's reflecting on God, redeeming the people out of Egypt. He just invests himself. He pours himself into Israel. And just at every opportunity, they're betraying God. They're turning against him. They're complaining. They're forgetting his work. And if you look at verse 40, it says, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. The idea of tempting God, I think it's helpful to think about that as tempting God to betray his nature. The idea is, God, who you are and what you're doing is not enough for us to follow you. And it's pushing God to act in arrogance in order to win the people, right? 
because God was giving graciously. He was humbling himself. He was staying true to himself. And it just was never enough for the people that he had invested all of himself in like he never had before, right? And even though they tempted him in these ways, God never compromised his character. Just like in Genesis chapter 6, something very important, God dealt with the sin of the situation, right? So in Genesis, God not compromising his character involved in that was the sin was going to be dealt with, right? Psalm 78, when God was confronted with the sins of the people, no, he didn't compromise his grace. No, he didn't repent from his mission and purpose. But yes, he did deal with the sin severely. That was withholding him from making the kind of investment he was seeking. As the psalm goes on, notice if you glance over at verse 68, it's the same thing as Noah finding favor and God putting all of himself into this new investment to try to salvage the way that things were going. When Israel, when they entered Canaan, were just still as disobedient as they ever had been, Shiloh in the northern part of Israel was eventually defeated by the Philistines. And it says, God then after a while chose the tribe of Judah. He built his sanctuary. Verse 70, he found David his servant. And then in verse 72, he shepherded his people according to his desire. So what was God's solution? Did he change his nature because of the time with Israel in the wilderness? Did he become suspicious of people in the future? Did he close himself off from making future investments like that? Now, the amazing thing is God, his solution was to actually invest more into the future. To find anybody he could pour himself into and he fully invested himself in new and greater ways than he ever had before. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 6. Um, Just continuing through God's dealing with his people. Ezekiel chapter 6. To me, these are actually, these verses in Ezekiel are some of the most powerful verses in the entire Old Testament. Just because of what's expressed about God. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. So this is during the time, this is much later than Israel in the wilderness or God choosing David, hundreds of years later, and it's just the same thing is still happening. God's dealing with the same pain. Um, He's warning the people. Again, he's dealing with their sin. He's on the brink of destroying Jerusalem, just as he destroyed the world in Noah's time, just as he destroyed an entire generation in the wilderness. Verse 8, However, I will leave a remnant. For you will have those who escaped the sword among the nations where you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all of their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. So, verse 9, particularly, um, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. It says, they will remember how they have hurt me with uh, their hearts. Verse 9, it says specifically their adulterous hearts. So, again, the ESV, um, I like that translation a little bit better. I don't think the New American Standard quite has the punch um, that the language is really meant to convey. The ESV says, how I have been broken by their whoring heart. Uh, The word actually more literally means broken. It means to be crushed. 
Uh, it means to be shattered to pieces. So it's kind of like if you've got a vase or some kind of um, object like that, you know, some clay vessel, and you literally take it and you smash it on the ground and it breaks in a way where it can't be put back together again. What God is saying is that's how he's been impacted by the adulterous hearts of his people. It's, it's like he's this vessel that's been thrown to the ground and just shattered and crushed. And the idea of them having a whoring heart, in chapter 16, God uses some incredibly explicit, nearly pornographic language about the way that Israel as this woman, as she's portrayed to be, has committed adultery on God in such ludicrous, radical ways when God has invested everything of his glory to adorn her, to make her beautiful, to exalt her, to make her famous, and everything given to her for fame, for beauty, for glory, all of it was used specifically to betray God. And did you see what his solution is in this text? Just like Genesis 6, just like Psalm 78, God is going to deal with their sin. He's going to suffer that pain. But he's not going to close his heart. He's not going to become suspicious of future opportunities. And that remnant, it was just another way for God to invest even more. And the reason why the Old Testament is so amazing is if you really pay attention, especially reflecting from the cross, you can actually feel the weight of God's agony. Every page. And as you see the weight of his agony and you see the generosity of his spirit and his willingness to forbear and his seeking to bless more, it just becomes more and more humbling when we return to the cross and we see those things most fully embodied when Jesus died and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So God's solution is always to invest himself even more into the future never to close himself off. Um, Two lessons that I want to talk about from this. First one, giving grace like God, um, one of the risks and realities of that, it confronts our hearts and puts into our hearts uh, the emotions that are actually hardest to bear. Um, It's emotions that actually have the highest potential to make you hate people. Um, to make you very suspicious of people. And I mean like really hate people. Um, kind of like police officers are oftentimes confronted with like the lowest people of society and eventually they just kind of look at everybody with suspicion. You know, they assume everybody's scum. That's, that's what God's grace has the potential to do to our hearts is giving his grace. The reality is if we're really going to extend ourselves, we have to realize that we're putting ourselves in a position where we can become bitter where we can become callous to people, where we can look at people with disdain, and where we can seek to protect ourselves from those things. God could have also said, I knew it all along. Israel's destiny of destruction was predicted by God clearly from the beginning of when the nation was born. Uh, Moses talked clearly about how they were going to have to be destroyed by a foreign nation eventually. But it's interesting that God never throws that in their face and throws his hands in the air and says, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. What a waste of my time. You know, I I saw that they were going to potentially take advantage of me and look what they've done, just like I thought all along. And the reality of giving grace, especially when it's clear that that's actually what somebody needs 
in order to get where they need to get spiritually. People with great needs, I face the temptation. I'm being quite serious about saying this. I face the temptation when I see somebody in a position of incredible need. In my mind, hidden away, I really do think things like this. I'm glad that they're saved and that they've obeyed the gospel. But their condition is so bad, you know, I just can't imagine that they'll make it very far. And then when they do fall away, if that happens, I'm tempted to think, "Mm, I saw that coming, didn't I? And you know what that does is it begins to callous the heart in subtle and quiet ways. So the second lesson from this is throughout this account of Scripture in the Old Testament, disbelief was actually making it look like God is not actually powerful to save anybody. Um, Like God is limited, you know? And that's actually the glorious opportunity when somebody has maybe more visible needs uh, that are greater than others. Um, It's an opportunity for us to see that God's promises are substantially real and true, right? You know, can homosexuals who are fully active in that lifestyle be converted to perfect faith? Can somebody who is deeply involved in transgenderism be fully converted to have perfect faith? Can somebody who's homeless and jobless and emotionally unstable, can somebody like that be converted to perfect faith? Yes. I may know that intellectually, right? But the reality is, when somebody with great needs fails to follow through, it inevitably, and this is just a reality, has the potential to cause observers to say, well, God's power just seems limited, right? So you become less motivated to teach, less motivated to reach out, less motivated to believe that people can really be restored and converted the way that God's promises. And that's why we need the resurrection. The reality is we cannot lose confidence in God's saving power because of anybody, right? It doesn't matter what any of us do, the choices any of us make. The resurrection proves that as Jesus' appearance was marred more than any man, it does not matter how far away someone is from the grace of God. They can be fully restored if they will just humble themselves and believe and let themselves be taught. It is not difficult Someone just simply has to choose to listen and humble themselves. That's the parable of the seed and the sower and the fertile ground. So next point. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to look at Paul with the Corinthians. Um, So like I said in the beginning of the lesson, um, just as far as like reading in scripture, uh, we don't really see as much with other churches in the relationship with Paul as we see with the Corinthians. These were people who are coming out of just being complete Gentiles, you know, doesn't seem like there were really, doesn't seem like there's Jewish people in the Corinth church. It seems like they're starting from absolute scratch. And these were people in 1 Corinthians where he says, you know, some of you were homosexuals, some of you were this, this, and this, and this, and you were washed and you were sanctified. So he makes the point in the first letter, like, you guys came from really rough backgrounds. And God took care of you. He saved you. He redeemed you. And Paul, his relationship with the Corinthians was for one vital, and we'll see that more so as we look through this point, but his relationship with the Corinthians was the clearest embodiment of God's grace that I think we ever get to see in the form of anyone outside of Jesus in the relationship with anybody else. 
Just it was a relationship built on Paul giving and getting nothing back. It's just giving and giving and giving. And we'll see some things that show the risk of that. So chapter two, verse four, this is, you know, him talking about a letter that he had written to them that was difficult, seems like between first and second Corinthians, he says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you may know the love which I have especially for you. Look at chapter six, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. So God's grace puts us in a position where we can experience sorrow we've never experienced before. But giving grace like God does, it opens our hearts. And when you open your heart, you're putting yourself at risk to actually be hurt in the deepest and most profound ways. So chapter 6, verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as the children, open wide to us also. And skip down to chapter 7, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So, Paul, knowing the example of Jesus, what he had chosen to do with the Corinthians is put them so fully into his heart to open his heart so fully to them that it put him in the most vulnerable position in his relationship to them. And turn to chapter 12. Um, We're going to look at verse 11 through chapter 13, verse 4, just very briefly. Um, But I just want you to see how risky this was, that this was not just some safe return investment, you know, where the Corinthians were being fair with all of these risks that Paul is taking and investing himself and opening himself up to them. Chapter 12, uh, I want to start verse 11 through 18. Chapter 12, 11 through 18. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect is I inferior to the most eminent apostles. Just kind of pause, just a note. These most eminent apostles are false teachers that Paul is trying to deal with that are captivating the Corinthians' attention. Uh, So going on, he says, even though I am a nobody, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same uh, steps? So stop there. Just notice verse 11. Giving God's grace, verse 11, here's another risk that I think is hard to understand because of how Jesus proved God's wisdom. God actually looks foolish. Throughout the Old Testament, it just looks like everything that God is doing is a mistake. It's a failure. Israel was never coming back to him. And even prophets like Habakkuk 
would look at the condition of his own nation and say, God, what are you doing? How can you be letting the law be lost in your nation when you can do something about this? Why are you letting the righteous seemingly fail and disappear and wickedness is overtaking this holy place? So God looks foolish. And the reality is, if we are going to extend grace, right? If we're going to seek to have just the perspective of God's grace and the determination and the willingness to take these risks, the reality is at the end of it all, it can actually make us seem very foolish in the process, right? And in verse uh, 15, um, what was Paul's attitude about what he had given and what he's continuing to give? You know, he says, I'm willing to give everything for you. This is actually something that brings me the highest joy. And the idea of spending is resources that he actually has, but then being expended is actually using himself as the resource. So he's saying, I will literally use everything I have for your salvation. I'll use myself in whatever way that I can. I will expend myself as a resource if that will help you get closer to God, right? And at this point, the Corinthians are in present danger of totally disregarding Paul, of turning away from him, discrediting him, following people who he is utterly shocked that they're captivated by because of just, first of all, how different they are than everything that they've seen from the gospel, but then that they're actually actively speaking against Paul, who had invested more in them than anybody else, right? And what they're doing is they're even using Paul's generosity as a tool to twist the Corinthians' mind away from him. So in verse 13, he mentions that, you know, he wasn't treating them as inferior, except, and I think there's some sarcasm here, that he didn't become a burden to them, meaning he wasn't taking money from them in serving them, because his relationship with them it was only one of a giver. Now notice in verse 16, the New American Standard translate this, translate this and I think in a helpful way. He says, Am I to love you, or am I to be loved less as I love you more? And he follows that up saying, be that as it may. What he's saying is, I accept that. You know, if you're going to love me less as I invest in you like this, if I'm going to get like nothing back, it's fine. It's not the expectation, right? Now, let's look at verse, uh, verse 19 through 13, verse 4. All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for the proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. So a couple of lessons from this as well. One, notice how hard it was for Paul 
to interact with the Corinthians in this way. So in verse 19 through the end of chapter 12, he expresses fear multiple times. You look at verse 20, he says, I am afraid. Verse 21, I am afraid. The hard thing about being gracious is it takes longer sometimes um, for someone's heart to be exposed. And it can be really painful because of a fear that something's being hidden underneath the surface. That being gracious is almost like allowing, right, as a tool to let fester, right? And that's just the reality of God's grace is that sometimes it can feel like you're being taken advantage of. Things are taking too long, right? But this is God's method. And I think it's important to understand that when we give grace without partiality, as we treat each condition and situation uniquely and individually, and we strive to have wisdom, and we make choices that are based in understanding God's character toward the person or situation, the patience and the investment of God's grace will expose what needs to be exposed with clarity and with time every time. That God will make sin clear. He will always bring to light hidden things. And it will always have a better result for the church and that individual when that is being done patiently. Right? Um, so I think what Paul acknowledges in verse 4 of chapter 13 is although it may look weak, God's method is powerful. And God's method is not going to fail. Paul is going to come to them and he is going to deal with their sin severely, right? So graciousness does not mean sin is not exposed and dealt with clearly and severely and completely, right? It's just, it's in a better context in God's method. So with that, this isn't the second lesson, um, but with that, how important was Paul to this church? Like, what if Paul gave up? What if Paul got worn out? What if Paul became suspicious or closed off before this letter? You know, it seems like Paul was literally, I mean, he was sending different people to the Corinthians, but he was like the one. And that anybody who is coming to interact with the Corinthians, they were coming because Paul sent them. Paul instructed them. Paul informed them. Without this one person loving this church this way, who knows what was going to happen with these people, right? So it is vital, even if it's just one person, that in the midst of the chaos of sin, the fear, the anxiety, the hurt, that the remnant, the small few, maintain that attitude so that God's power can work. Second lesson from this, and we'll try to move to the last point briefly. Um, in Matthew 23, the Pharisees... Their focus of where to invest was just totally off. And a consequence that I think reveals that we don't understand God's grace or we've shown it in the past and have withdrawn ourselves is we don't actually make investments consistent with God's example. So in Matthew 23, he tells the Pharisees this famous line that they tithe mint, rue, dill, and cumin and all sorts of spices and herbs, but they neglect the weightier matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness, right? He says in the next statement that um, they look righteous on the outside, but inwardly are full of greed and selfish indulgence, right? So the Pharisees, they looked righteous, but they were investing themselves in all the wrong things. And it, it wasn't, just to balance that, it wasn't wrong to tithe. 
It was wrong to just fully invest into that and then just neglect the real call of God's people, right? So I think we've got to be careful about investing so much into things that cannot hurt us in a way that almost is at the expense of investing in the things that can hurt us. Ultimately, the work of the church is renovating and restoring souls to the image of Christ, right? And I think, just to be, I think, maybe clear in an application, um, the work happening at the building is really good, it's important, it's encouraging. Um, It's a good work, and it's important we're good stewards of what this church is supporting financially, but... Although we are striving to take care of this building and renovate this building, the work of the church is not taking care of a building, right? So we've made a catastrophic mistake if we'll talk about and work on the building diligently, but not the souls who meet in the building, right? We've got to keep first things first, and we can't let opportunities like this cause us to callous our hearts to where we're less eager to make those more risky, difficult investments, right? So I'll try to make this last point briefly. Um, Luke chapter 6. So this last point is, just bluntly, what are we commanded to do? Um, You know, Paul, it looks really amazing what he's doing for the Corinthians, but I mean, all Paul is doing is what he's been commanded as a servant. There's really nothing ultimately extraordinary about it. Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 38. I'm just going to read this whole passage, and we'll just make some reflective points and conclude the lesson. Uh, Luke chapter 6, 27 through 38. This is, in terms of the risks and the realities of God's grace, what's our responsibility? What are we commanded to do, right? So Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure will be measured to you in return. just want to think, how can we obey these things without becoming bitter? How do we look at these things and actually think, wow, I want to do that, you know? Um, so like verse 28 in the New King James, um, I think this is helpful when it says, pray for those who mistreat you in the New American Standard. The New King James translates that, pray for those who spitefully use you. So you know what this ultimately looks like? Um, getting stepped on, taken advantage of, misused, um, getting resources taken from you without it being appreciated while you are disregarded, um, suffering pain and being stretched out and even potentially being in doubt of what's going to happen with your finances. And the people you're giving to are oftentimes not going to understand that or care about it. They may even hurt you purposely uh, as a result of it. So how do you 
How do we do these things and not just become like really bitter, closed off people, right? And I think the key thing is actually in verse 35 and 36. It's understanding God's example. Jesus, it's understanding Jesus' example. Without God's example and like deepening our understanding through these things of what I've received from the storehouse of God's grace, these commands are literally void. I will read these things. I will even agree with these things. I'll think like, yeah, I mean, Jesus said it. Absolutely, it's got to be done. And I won't do it. Guarantee you I will not do it, right? Because there's a demand that, first of all, I will not understand. And as soon as my heart even touches the demand, I'm done, right? So just think about this. We talked about earlier in Acts 17, God gives people breath and life and food and movement in their bodies. Literally everything we have, the light around us, everything we enjoy is actually all from God, right? God's not passive on some couch watching TV and the world is on his TV. God is painfully invested in everybody's lives. So God does that. And how many people, how many people like thank God for all of that? How many people ever really think about God? because of all that. How many people use all of that and then turn around and actually try to actively persuade people to not believe in God? How important is it that God suffers those things and remains consistent? How important is it that God is willing to bear all of that and still press forward in faithfulness, right? We are literally relying on God's faithfulness to live, right? Understanding that just, I think, opens our hearts more and more. And verse 37 and 38, the idea of do not judge and you will not be judged, I think it's the idea again of like not making ulterior judgments to what God says. When he says give, when he says hope for nothing in return, when he says give to everyone who asks of you, it's my judgment that says, no, I've been hurt before. It's my judgment that says, if I do that, it's going, to be in a, it's going to put me into a position that I just really don't want to be in. So I'm just going to ignore that, right? So when he says, judge not, it's I don't get to dictate my generosity. I don't get to be the judge of these circumstances. I have to humble myself to obey as a servant, right? And we're seeking to pardon. And that's not, I think, just a passive, like, oh, I, I forgive people. You know, like, just in my mind saying, you know, just don't worry about it. No, pardoning is the commandments that we read. It's, I will do whatever it takes, both to spend and be expended, to bring people into that condition. That when I see that somebody has financial needs, spiritual needs, whatever it is, I'm going to do everything that I can with all of my resources to bring them into this condition that God desires, whatever it is. So again, it's not, it's not a passive command it is a very active, self-sacrificing command. And then by the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you with this good measure, pressed down, shaken together. It's the idea of this overflowing measure being given right back into you and, and pushed into your chest, like take it and see it and accept it. The idea is God guarantees he will always make provision and make up for everything we lose in the process of living for his grace. That when we're getting worn out, when we're getting spent, when we're getting emotionally weak, God will always make sure our eyes are more opened to the glory of the things that anchor us in his grace more and more. 
And by your standard of measure, can you just imagine if you become bitter or suspicious, if God in return did that to you? And I think obeying these things helps us to understand how hard it is for God to bear with us and how amazing it is for him to choose to do that. The Lord's Supper is exactly that. Luke 23, 46, Jesus dies on the cross saying, Father, into your hands and commit my spirit. The idea is Jesus spent everything that he had, everything. And it looked so bad that Jesus could only say, God, I know your promises. I just entrust all of this to you because without you, this, this has resulted in complete failure, right? And did God leave Jesus without being repaid for that? Did Jesus give without it being given to him in return, right? So although it takes courage to suffer, it requires faith to see the blessings that God gives. God will never fail to exceedingly and abundantly do beyond anything we can ask, think, or ever imagine as we serve him by grace. So that's where we'll stop. Appreciate your patience. Um, I would like, although this lesson has been long, um, if we could just say a prayer for a moment before extending the invitation. Um, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we love you and your grace is so amazing. Just help this church in these circumstances, God, to not grow weary. Help us, Father, to have even greater zeal and passion for you and to have seeds planted that cause our faith in you, our reliance in you to grow and to abound. Just bless our love for you to grow more uh, more perceptive of the way that you bless us and suffer for us, God. How you give to us everything that you have at your disposal to sustain us and to help us. Help Philip, God, to repent, to see his condition, Father, and to restore himself and Help us to be willing to fully embrace him and continue to serve him should he repent. Just help us to be generous in the future to others who may be in great need. And help us, God, to have hearts that are lifted to you and are committed to you, God. Just we entrust ourselves to you, God, and we are vulnerable, we are weak, we rely on you, God. So bless us and just bless this work and help us, God. In your son's name, amen. Um, If you're here and these things seem foreign or don't have a place in your life, Um, Jesus would go on to say that the foundation you're building your life on is actually totally fake and it will collapse either in this life or the life to come. And so you're urged to see the beauty of these things, of what God is seeking to give you freely to build your foundation on his grace. If there's anything else that needs to be made known, please bring it forward while we stand and sing invitation song.